For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. Advent and Christmas provide this contrast of significance and meaning and transcendence, but so much of human life and living a good life might just be unspectacular. And it might be the way to redemption, actually. Just living a good, quiet life outside of what our sort of societal notions of success and fame are, that's actually good. And that's worth pursuing. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. So my three-year-old son, Gus, has been asking me every day when Christmas is coming. The anticipation is just agonizing for him. And look, the childhood experience of time is totally different than the adult experience. But little buddy just can't wait. And it doesn't seem to matter to him when I tell him that Advent is the perfect time of the year to develop the habit of waiting for the sake of cultivating more patience and appreciating the moment you're in. But what Gus doesn't know yet about the way most of us tend to celebrate Christmas in America that it gets worse, as long as it feels like it takes for Christmas to arrive. It seems to pass in the blink of an eye, as trees get kicked out to the curb, lights get stripped off the house, we return what we got for what we want. But if Christmas feels that way, perhaps it's owed to the misplaced hope for constant magnificence, the desire for constant celebration and entertainment, and therefore the constant feeling of boredom and being let down. In the midst of war, the loss of his mother, and the heartbreak of unrequited love, W.H. Auden was rediscovering his faith. And the fitting response to the darkness and despair and apathy around him, he thought, was the Christmas event. So he set to work on a Christmas oratorio called For the Time Being. Originally meant to be performed and sung, what emerged is, I guarantee, a much more sobering and stark retelling of the Christmas narrative than you're used to. And beautifully so. Auden's modernist poetry becomes a way for modern humanity, whose resources are spent, whose plans have gone awry, whose hopes have been misplaced, whose sense of time has been unwound, to find redemption amidst the quotidian, the mundane, and the everyday, but also always in an eternally full moment of decision, a response to the bare fact of the incarnation of God in the infant Jesus. So I asked writer Jeff Reimer to join me on the show for a discussion of Auden's For the Time Being. Jeff is currently associate editor of Comment Magazine and has bylines at Commonweal, Plow, and a variety of other publications. A close reader of Auden, Reimer suggests that his modern retelling of Christmas helps us to diagnose and treat the quintessentially modern vice of acedia, the noonday demon. We discuss the anachronistic cast of characters Auden uses to comment on the human condition. We read and marvel at several passages of the text, and we consider what Auden takes to be the matter of ultimate importance in our experience of Christmas, responding to the audacious claim that God has become human. Thanks for listening. Jeff Reimer, thanks so much for joining me on For the Life of the World. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. So it's Advent coming up on Christmas. Some people approach Christmas from the perspective of this excited kid where every day you're asking and, and anticipating and 
there's sort of this crescendo of excitement and holiday joy and opening presents. And then it just drops off that night or maybe slowly throughout the day into the, the hangover of Boxing Day on the 26th. Yeah. And we, of course, medicate that with more shopping. But Christmas has this kind of anticipation through December and then boom, drop off. The lights are taken down, the trees in the trash, and you've got post-Christmas blues. So, so the post-Christmas blues are real. Tell me a little bit about what you have in mind in diagnosing that this sort of yearly winter cycle we have. Yeah, well, every year I have to uh, convince my wife to keep up the tree till Epiphany. Yeah, that's a yearly battle in our household. She's ready to move on, and I want to linger. But <laughs> no. that's that's the very real experience, right? Our culture has flipped the fast for the feast and the feast for the fast. We feast in Advent, and we fast in the New Year when the liturgical calendar is precisely opposite that. So enter W.H. Auden, who has this long poem to help us diagnose the post-Christmas blues. And it's, of course, diagnosing more than just the blues that surround Christmas. It's diagnosing the human condition in an important way yeah. as a response to the incarnation. So how would you introduce the sort of take that W.H. Auden has on Christmas? Rereading it this year, I noticed that it actually starts out pretty dark, deflated and dispirited in the first Advent section. Yeah. He's talking about the wrath of God, and we've already run out of our own resources, and that'll be addressed throughout the rest of the poem. Sort of human endeavor and human spirit has run aground, and what what happens when there's this intervention from outside? That's right. I mean, the very first words, darkness and snow descend. The yeah. clock on the mantelpiece has nothing to recommend, nor does the face in the glass appear nobler than our own as darkness and snow descend on all personality. And it's not just left to that. He's also speaking about war, the evil and armed draw near. All our plans have gone awry. And so there's this kind of despair that, that yeah. kind of proceeds. And so how, how does that context line up with the setting for Advent and Christmas in your mind? Well, I think part of what he's doing in this opening section is the the first Sunday of Advent is traditionally the celebration of Christ's second coming. So mm -hmm. we start out on this apocalyptic note yeah. rather than the sort of warm anticipation and excitement that you typically associate with Advent. There's very little Christmas cheer. And I think that's very intentional. The narrator pops up throughout the poem as this sort of sober voice addressing the situation at large and he ends his first major monologue with that is why we despair that is why we would welcome the nursery bogey or the wine cellar ghost why even the violent howling of winter and war has become like a jukebox tune that we dare not stop we are afraid of pain but more afraid of silence for no nightmare of hostile objects could be as terrible as this void this is the abomination this is the wrath of God. That's how we come into Advent. <laughs> yeah, it's not with uh, Christmas jingles on the radio. Yeah, so that's the tone he starts out with. That tone, is that, I wonder, how does that compare 
to Auden's other poetry and his perspective on the human condition. There's this kind of void. There's hostile objects. <laughs> yeah, well, Auden wrote this in the midst of World War II, for one, and two, right after the, the death of his mother. And number three, he had just re-embraced his faith. And so this was all new to him. Huh. And he wanted to explore possibilities for hope and redemption in the midst of these sort of uh, areas of confusion and grief and despair, mm. rather than what the Frank Sinatra singing Let It Snow or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So a time of upheaval for Auden personally, and he's interacting with the incarnation in a way that, well, it, it reorients him to his faith, it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, at this, I think at this stage in his life, he was very Kierkegaardian in his approach to faith. You see that a little bit in the recitative section. The, the miracle is the only thing that happens, but to you it will not be apparent until all events have been studied and nothing happens that you cannot explain. And life is the destiny you are bound to refuse until you have consented to die. Wow. These are That's... all very oppositional approaches to the faith that where reason and optimism have run out. Well, right. That's the only place that you can approach Christ from. Okay, good. Where, re where reason and optimism, or maybe hope, where hope runs mm -hmm. out, that's the disposition from which it's most ideal, perhaps, to approach the incarnation of Christ. Yeah, yeah. You're almost primed for something to come from outside, from outside of your own resources or outside the resources of the, the, the human sphere that's when the transcendent comes shining through the darkness. Got it. So there's a kind of exhaustion. We've used up all of our devices. We've used up all of our plans. They've gone awry. We're left with essentially nothing. And that mm -hmm. kind of bereavement there, the feeling of being bereft mm -hmm. and I've got nothing is probably a common feeling during World War II. It's a mm -hmm. common feeling when you lose a parent, that feeling of being abandoned. I'm fascinated about the the liturgical usefulness of that in the context of Advent. Yeah, yeah. There's the one way Christ comes in as the king, as, and there's an apocalyptic kind of note. But then the Christ child comes in silent and invites us and even forces us to respond. You have said that the central question of for the time being is this. What do we do with this singular Christmas event? You also yeah. say that every character in this long and complex poem senses that the birth of the child demands a response. Yeah. Uh, whether they want to respond or not, <laughs> hey, right. particularly Herod, we can get to that later. He's kind of, he, he's the most entertaining part of the poem, I think. Well, that's good. So then tell us a little bit about the, maybe the cast of characters yeah. that we meet in For the Time Being. And, and maybe the variety of responses that they represent. Yeah. And then we can go into detail about some of them too. Sure. Yeah. So we, we have the sort of standard cast of characters uh, in the poem. We have Mary, we have Joseph, mm -hmm. we have the wise men, we have the shepherds. Yeah. We have Herod, we have Simeon. And each of them 
responds in a different way to this kind of moment of address. Baden is reading a lot of existentialist theology at this time. So mm. that moment of decision and becoming is very important to him. Uh. And they're almost sort of dragged to it. They'd, some of them would rather not um, mm-hmm. be addressed and be forced to respond. And I think that's what's important about the silence of Christ in the poem mm. is that he's not the one doing the talking. These are the people responding to this new situation, this completely utterly uh, novel way of God working in the world, unexpected and Mm -hmm. uh, unwelcome in some cases. The silence there as well really forces you to pay attention to the bare fact of the incarnation yeah, and not just responding to the sermons or responding to the actions or, or the service of Christ. That's interesting. There's that, that, that just sort of distills the, the essence of it. Yeah. Now, but we have other characters too. We have some strange characters, right? <laughs> We've got, for instance, intuition, feeling, <laughs> sensation, and thought, who all yeah. have their own section of lines. <laughs> the star of yeah. the nativity also makes a speech. <laughs> makes a speech. <laughs> and I like to imagine like a, a little child being hung from like a stage rope or something as the star during that portion of the and a lot of these and his notes for a lot of this. So yeah, he had people in mind for these parts. What is the usefulness of casting roles for intuition, sensation, feeling, and thought? Auden drew this part from Carl Jung. I think what he's trying to do, at least partly, is to draw in not just a character and not just a type, but all aspects of creation. At, at one point, number and weight are called on to rejoice, these sort of abstract concepts. Yeah. And these deeper parts of sort of the human person are also sort of dredged up and yeah. confronted with Christ. So it's like they represent the human identity mm-hmm. in some sense, or the self. And it's almost yeah. like this stand in for the modern self, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I'm just interested by the way that this representation of the human self, especially the the consciousness of the self, right? Like the stuff that's inside of us. So you have this dialogue almost internally within the human being as Mm -hmm. a kind of archetype. And then all of a sudden, this angel says one word, wake. And, and of course, Gabriel speaking to Mary. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and now you've got this particular person and not just any old particular person, but the mother of God. And it's very fascinating to think about the exemplarity of Mary yeah. in that case, that she's awakened by the angel Gabriel and her response is so fascinating and it really diverges from Joseph's response too. So mm-hmm. I wonder if we could go there with the parents of Jesus. Yeah, you had an interesting observation about the sort of role that the four faculties of thought play. And it, the sort of image that comes to mind for me is the sort of the human person, the human self is being pulled up. You feel like a little bit like yeah. you're coming up through the water. Yep. And when Gabriel says, wake, you're surfacing, but you've come up through these sort of areas of the sub, the Jungian subconscious. So yes. the whole human person in its deepest aspect gets addressed here not just our waking mind our waking self but 
all of us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So let's talk about Mary then. Let's get that first exchange out there. Mary, in a dream of love, playing as all children play, for unsuspecting children may express in comic make-believe the wish that later they will know is tragic and impossible. Here, child, what I am sent to tell, love wills your dream to happen, so love's will on earth may be through you, no longer a pretend, but true. And then Mary says, What dancing joy would whirl my ignorance away? Light blazes out of the stone, the taciturn water bursts into music, and warm wings throb within the motionless rose. What sudden rush of power commands me to command. The sense you get from Mary is this sort of joyful astonishment. The kind of joyful astonishment that you might think is also a part of being humble and being magnanimous at the same time. Like you can see yeah. the greatness of soul in yeah. in in Mary and the ways in which the Annunciation really like infuses her with that kind of feeling of greatness. And the wonder yeah. of being, of being addressed and recognized by God this way. Yeah, I think that's a great contrast, and it's not even a contrast, but to say that humility and magnanimity are at one with each other in Mary. We'll be right back with more of W. H. Auden's for the time being. Hello, listeners. We do not want podcasting to be a one-sided conversation. So let's try something fun. In 2022, we're going to roll out some experimental segments for the show, and they involve your voice. First, we're inviting you to office hours. You have a burning question, observation, objection, or just want to know more about a topic we cover? Simply record your question with your smartphone and send us the clip by email at faith at yale.edu. This might surprise you, but a lot of professional podcasts, including ours, use smartphone audio for guests. We'll review your questions every week and include your voice on the show before we discuss either with that week's guest or Miroslav Wolf or a friend of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Second, in keeping with our purpose to help people envision and pursue lives worthy of our humanity, maybe you have a way of articulating an answer to that question that's worth sharing. If so, send a two-minute clip of yourself tackling life's most enduring question. What does it mean to live a life worthy of our humanity? We'll give it a listen and then share with all the other listeners of the show. This is our way of calling out from the podcast cave in hopes of getting a response from outside the echo chamber. Happy recording, friends. Now back to the show. Let's contrast that with Joseph. So there's all sorts of rejoicing. You get the chorus coming in. Let, as you said earlier, let number and weight rejoice. Mm -hmm. singing and dancing, let even the great rejoice. There's a way, there's a voice. Let even the small rejoice, let even the young rejoice, let even the old rejoice. And there's all sorts of singing and dancing. Uh -huh. And then we get to Joseph. Auden's Joseph is sitting in a bar. His shoes shined, my pants were cleaned and pressed, and I'm hurrying out to meet my own true love. So he's waiting for Mary. And the depiction of Joseph is one, one place I wanted to hone in on yeah. because the theology of, or maybe even the phenomenology of what it's like to be Joseph 
mm-hmm. in response to this. I think Auden's treatment of it is very fascinating. Yeah. I've noticed, and this is my experience too, a lot of people on their first read-through, this is the first part they really connect with. Um, oh, interesting. I have to say that's the case for me too. He talks about, let me see if I can find it here. Today the roles are altered. You must be the weaker sex whose passion is passivity. Yeah. So you see Joseph having to atone even for the shortcomings and failures of his sex. The role reversal, I think, is an important factor here. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a nod to the kind of feminism that emerges from the the Christmas story, which is the leadership needs to come from Mary here. The faithfulness needs to come through Mary. And Joseph has to, the question he's faced with is, should I believe her? Yeah. And that's the temptation, right? This section for Auden is the temptation of St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. And whereas Mary's response is one of joy and and it's a yes, Joseph's response to Gabriel, at least for Auden here, is one of demanding a proof. Yeah. So give me a reason to believe her. Yeah. And man, I, I just, I'm amazed by what this section does at a kind of like cultural level when we're thinking about gender and the interaction between men and women. And, um, and so he said, so Joseph says, how then am I to know father that you are just give me one reason. Gabriel's response, just no. <laughs> yeah. Right. All I ask is one important and elegant proof that what my love had done was really at your will and that your will is love. Gabriel responds. No, you must believe. Be silent and sit still. (laughs) That's so good. And he does. That's the last thing he says. Joseph doesn't say anything more until the very end when they're in the flight to Egypt. Oh, see, that's amazing. And this is to take it out of the gendered context for a moment and just say that Joseph really is standing in our position for humanity in this moment, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. this is an experience and an appearance. It's just to marry. That's what the Annunciation is. It's not public. It's not broadcast to the world. We are left with faith in this incarnation of God in the body of a woman. And we're left with the challenge of taking her at her word. Yeah. And it's always a scandal. The virgin birth has always been a scandal. Yeah. This section is very autobiographical for Auden. Oh, interesting. In in many ways, he's writing about himself. He had been involved with his relationship with Chester Kalman, lifelong, kind of considered himself married to him, found out that was not going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And he had to decide whether to choose to love or to hate in response to this. And so I I think that's another part, another reason why so many people connect with it because it's, it just feels very personal and interior. And I think that's because it came straight from Auden's heart. Yeah. The chorus ends our section on the temptations of St. Joseph with these lines. Blessed woman, excellent man, redeem for the dull, the average way. That common ungifted natures may believe that their normal vision can walk to perfection. The average way really stands out to me. Yeah. 
Tell us a little bit about the average way and how that is expressive of for the time being as a whole. Yeah, so much of this poem is, is about redeeming the, the mundane and the quotidian. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what Walker Percy calls everydayness. When I first t- sort of dug into yeah. this poem for real, I was reading a lot of Walker Percy too. And just I love Walker Percy. The ideas that they're sharing are amazing. They're reading a lot of the same people. I don't think Auden and Percy knew each other. They were contemporaries, but. But yeah, Percy was himself a Kierkegaard reader. Yep. Yeah. And so what do you do when, in Percy's phrase, what do you do when it's four o'clock on Wednesday and the whole world just falls flat before you? Auden is trying to think through what that looks like. You know, Advent and Christmas provide this contrast of significance and meaning and transcendence. Mm-hmm. But so much of human life and living a good life might just be unspectacular. And it might be the way to redemption, actually. Just living a good, quiet life outside of what our sort of societal notions of success and fame are. That's actually good. And that's worth pursuing. Absolutely. I think it's very much connected to that feeling of, in Percy's words, it's Wednesday at 4 p.m. that falls flat. But, you know, I've personally experienced it. I'm sure others have experienced it, that Christmas Day at 4 p.m. can sometimes fall flat. (laughs) Yeah. You think, that's all there is. Because we've kind of performatively in the culture, we've made such a big deal out of it. And like I said, it just drops off at the end. And all it was really there for was a kind of gimmick. Mm-hmm. A kind of consumeristic marketing game. And it's just all materialistic and about having more stuff. And so the question of everydayness and the average way and looking for an answer precisely therein, mm-hmm. I think it leads us toward a really important connection that you draw between for the time being and this quintessentially modern vice. Mm-hmm. And that's acedia and there's a spiritual depression or lapse in an understanding of one's vocation before god and, and yeah. it's very complicated vice that's gotten a lot more attention rightly so because of its quintessential modern way of diet or because of its ability to diagnose the modern condition so well i i spent a a good couple of years investigating acedia not least because I was an interested party. <laughs> yeah. Reading the Desert Fathers on Acedia, reading Walker Percy, and then coming across the line in Charles Taylor in A Secular Age where he says, our present condition is one in which many people are happy, living for goals which are purely imminent. We live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent. Yeah, That's, you know, just Acedia writ large. That's, wow. that's our culture is arranged around this idea. Talk about how that comes through in For the Time Being. How does the experience of everydayness, the average way, talk about how that comes through? Well, one way, he paints this kind of grand picture of Christmas and all these different characters responding and this beautiful moment of summons. And then, as I said, he sets us down right right beyond the edge of that picture. So we're looking back at it. We're set down just beyond the edge of 
the grand Christmas scheme. Yeah. And that's when the narrator comes back in and mm-hmm. just kind of assesses things. Now, where's that? Uh, that's in, so it's in the, the penultimate section. It's my favorite part of the poem, and it's one of the most famous parts, and I think rightly so. So the narrator is assessing things after Christmas and inviting us to, I think, almost implicitly, not to look back, but to look forward. But he's being honest about it, you know? Yeah, so he says, well, so that is that. I mean, this is the 4 p.m. on Christmas Day that I, I, I regularly feel. Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree, putting the decorations back into their cardboard boxes. Some have got broken, carrying them up to the attic. The holly and the mistletoe must be taken down and burnt, and the children got ready for school. There are enough leftovers to do warmed up for the rest of the week. Not that we have much appetite, having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted quite unsuccessfully to love all our relatives, and in general (laughs) grossly overestimated our powers. So it's just like... He nails it. (laughs) <laughs> nails acedia nails the feeling of honestly the the feeling of utter fear and dread of one's own boring existence <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly right and this is where the phrase for the time being i think it shows up three times in this sec- short section hmm. here it is the time being is in a sense the most trying time of all For the innocent children who whispered so excitedly outside the locked door where they knew the presence to be grew up when it opened. Now, recollecting that moment, we can repress the joy, but the guilt remains conscious. That sense of loss after Christmas, growing up, sort of trading mystery and excitement for disenchantment and ennui, that's a, that's a, a human thing. It's a life cycle that we all follow. Yeah. But what's beautiful is what even just immediately follows, that there is a kind of response. There's an antidote in a way. It's remembering the stable where for once in our lives, everything became a you and nothing was an it. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I mean, yeah. it, the sense in which from this humble position, the incarnation is a recognition of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's an I thou Martin Buber kind yep. of thing where to be addressed by God, to be recognized by God, that's it's so uplifting, right? And that's the uplifting nature of the incarnation when you think about what it says about our humanity. Which is wonderful, but it's a moment. Yeah, and, you must remember it. Yeah, it's for remembering. Yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. a, you must remember it. And, and there's nothing wrong with remembering it, but you can't, like, it's a moment, so you can't stay there. Yeah. He says, in the meantime, there are bills to be paid, machines to keep in repair, irregular verbs to learn, the time being to redeem from insignificance. The happy morning is over. The night of agony is still to come. The time is noon when the spirit must practice his scales of rejoicing without even a hostile audience and the soul endure a silence that is neither for nor against her faith, that God's will be done, that in spite of her prayers, God will cheat no one, not even the world of its triumph. That's amazing. And you even get the time is noon, the noonday demon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the city of the noonday demon. It's powerful. It's powerful that that sense that God will allow us to fail, necessarily so. He will. He's not going to 
answer our wish to stay at the stable. There's the very nice line. He says, Once again, as in previous years, we have seen the actual vision and failed to do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility. Once again, we have sent him away, begging though to remain his disobedient servant, the promising child who cannot keep his word for long. The Christmas feast is already a fading memory, and already the mind begins to be vaguely aware of an unpleasant whiff of apprehension at the thought of Lent and Good Friday, which cannot, after all, now be very far off. That hurts. Yeah. <laughs> it's it too real. It does. It's too real. <laughs> it's that sort of, but that's the world he's inviting us into. That's the time being to redeem from insignificance. Yeah. This is a difficult passage to just, it's difficult to sum up. It, it, it's, I think it's the, the most successful poetic passage in the whole poem. That is a real feeling. And, and he continues, but for the time being, and there's the title, mm -hmm. here we all are. Back in the moderate Aristotelian city of Darning and the 815, where Euclid's geometry and Newton's mechanics would account for our experience, and the kitchen table exists because I scrub it. It oh. seems to, it's, it, yeah, ouch. Uh, <laughs> it seems to have shrunk during the holidays. The streets are much narrower than we remembered. We had forgotten the office was as depressing as this. He's doing this kind of amazing thing. And I think this is something that modernist poetry can do uniquely with theology. And it's this kind of, quotidian right it has to yeah. be done in this way it has to be references to scrubbing the kitchen table and the depressing office walls it says something about the human reception of god via the incarnation and and the question that is posed of you know, who do you say that i am or what is our response to the christ child and it's just something that is i think speaks to the style and the form of doing it this way yeah. It's amazing how contemporary these lines feel. That's right. It's easy to forget they were written 80 years ago. <laughs> Another way, the time being, is a kind of core concept for Auden's approach to Christmas, is the way in which using this kind of modernist contemporary language reanimates and calls us back to this ancient moment but his use of contemporary language to get there, the colloquialism of it, it's so fascinating. And it re-enlivens the meaning of the incarnation in our context. And I think that's one of the qualities of successful poetry is you cannot say it in any fewer words than it has been said already. And that yeah. invitation into that, like inhabiting that moment that's what poetry does. So in a sense, we're, if we're finding ourselves caught up in that poetry, we've responded to the summons in a new kind of way. Auden has done that successfully in his poetry in a way that extends, I don't want to get too overheated, but extends the incarnation in a sense to, by pulling us into significance, into understanding our lives in this moment and going forward. 
So two other characters factor prominently in For the Time Being, and that's Simeon and Herod. Tell me a little bit about Simeon and Herod as characters in For the Time Being and how they act as foils to one another. Yeah, so Simeon is an intellectual. What's the historical Simeon in the Gospels? He was at the temple. He was awaiting the salvation of Israel. He's the one who speaks, him and Anna speak when they bring in Christ for to be circumcised at the temple. And Got these it. two are both there. Got it. So th- that's what Simeon represents. And also liturgically, it's Simeon's words, now let us, thy servant depart in peace. It's the Nunc Dimittis, mm-hmm. an evening prayer. So th- th- there's a lot going on here with Simeon. Okay. And all that plays into it. But, you know, what we get, basically Paul Tillich, dressed up as Simeon. Interesting. Okay, so w- walk us through that a little bit. Auden is trying, I mean, he wants a chance for what we'd now call the theological elite to speak. What does it look like for a theologian to recognize the incarnation? Oh, interesting. So we have all kinds of talk about the unconditioned, infinite, and con- conditioned being, and it's incredibly mm-hmm. dense. And he ends up affirming in the complex theological language Christ's incarnation and gives his own sort of nunc dimittis at the very end. Yeah. I'll read here. Okay, great. And because of his visitation, we may no longer desire God as if he were lacking. Our redemption is no longer a question of pursuit, but of surrender to him who is always and everywhere present. At every moment, we pray that following him, we may depart from our anxiety into his peace. So it's, it's a distinctly modern sort of departure uh, that it addresses our anxiety and not just our fallenness. Oh, that's interesting. So for all of Simeon's abstractions and theological language, even in his affirmation, which is good and right, we come next to Herod, who is entertaining and funny and earthy <laughs> and approachable and likable almost, although not in yeah. the end, I don't think. But he's just a much more interesting character to read. But it, it's, it's also, he's also an intellectual. He's at, hmm. modeled on uh, Marcus Aurelius, not Herod the ruler. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, so his monologue starts out in the very same way that Marcus Aurelius's meditations do. Hmm. But he thinks his way straight into violence. That's what's, and I think that's what's interesting. He does not accept that human resources have been depleted. Herod is at once an intellectual and a political ruler. So he is optimistic about the things that have gotten done. He says, barges are unloading soil fertilizer at the river wharves. Soft drinks and sandwiches may be had in the inn at reasonable prices. Allotment (laughs) gardening has become popular. The highway to the coast goes straight up over the mountains and truck drivers no longer carry guns. All this is political progress and he's proud of it. And he's unwilling to admit that it is not enough. And he's done a lot of work to eradicate superstition. Hmm. But here is this new sect celebrating God becoming human. It's another superstition. Why do they keep falling for these bruises? Hmm. It just makes him angry. And he's a Stoic, so he's not supposed to get angry. (laughs) (laughs) He 
finds himself against his will being pulled into involvement in human emotion, in oh. God's dealings with the world. And what looks like the Stoic virtue of apatheia, which is cultivated indifference, yeah. ends up becoming resistance to what God is doing. Now, I come from central Kansas and good country Mennonite folk around here know what passive aggression is very well. <laughs> and you're all, you always have this sort of buffer of plausible deniability that you mm. are actually acting aggressively towards somebody you don't like or don't that you're <laughs> angry at. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what Herod gets caught up in and called out by the silent Christ. That point of view is about Herod's desire to remain neutral and indifferent mm -hmm. and ap stoically apathetic, to feel nothing, to think nothing uh, mm -hmm. about this Christ child. It's like you can't unhear that. And that's the sense in which the, the very claim of God becoming human, it really draws out the sense in which it is a moment of decision. It's something that must be done. You must do something with it. You yeah. can't remain totally indifferent to it. Yeah. So I'll read a part where he addresses that directly. Oh, dear. Why couldn't this wretched infant be born somewhere else? Why can't people be <laughs> sensible? I don't want to be horrid. Why can't they see that the notion of a finite God is absurd? Because it is. And suppose, just for the sake of argument, that it isn't, that this story is true, that this child is in some inexplicable manner both God and man, that he grows up, lives, and dies without committing a single sin. Would that make life any better? On the contrary, it would make it far, far worse. For it can only mean this, that once having shown them how, God would expect every man, whatever his fortune, to lead a sinless life in the flesh and on earth. Then indeed would the human race be plunged into madness and despair. And for me personally, at this moment, it would mean that God had given me the power to destroy himself. I refuse to be taken in. He could not play such a horrible practical joke. Why should he dislike me so? I've worked like a slave. Ask anyone you like. I read all official dispatches without skipping. I've taken elocution lessons. I've hardly ever taken bribes. How dare he allow me to decide? I've tried to be good. I brush my teeth every night. I haven't had <laughs> sex for a month. I object. I'm a liberal. I want everyone to be happy. I wish I had never been born. Oh, my goodness. It's just so tragically comic. Yeah. The desire to be left alone here, that kind of alienation just leads to more despair. To respond that way to that event is to really just ultimately embrace the despair. I wish I had never been born. And in that sense, it really draws out the sense in which it is a moment of decision that the incarnation catalyzes. Yeah. And that in so many ways, refusal of it results in violence, results in massacre. This moment of decision winds up forcing Herod to deal with it politically to quash it, or at least attempt to. Yeah, yeah. As you think about the significance of what Auden's done here, and maybe the, like the spiritual practicality of it, what lands to you? You know, I think this is a, an affliction, I think particularly of writers, but of everybody, is that it, it's very difficult to inhabit a moment in the way you are meant to inhabit a moment. 
I often think of somebody who takes a selfie. <laughs> yeah. Looks like they're inhabiting a moment, but looking at a picture of a person who's taking a selfie, they're not inhabiting a moment, <laughs> right? They look kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, a little snapshot of the human condition. Those moments are valuable and meaningful, mm-hmm. but to move beyond them and to look forward and embrace what the world is giving you now and what the world is going to give you. That's sort of the takeaway. And that's the last short section of the poem is he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. That last section is divided into three short stanzas. Hmm. This is the ending of the poem. Yeah, yeah. This is after the narrator has sort of given us the post-Christmas blues wrap-up. Right. And there are three stanzas. He is the way. Follow him through the land of unlikeness. You will see rare beasts and have unique adventures. He is the truth. Seek him in the kingdom of anxiety. You will come to a great city that has expected your return for years. He is the life. Love him in the world of the flesh. And at your marriage, all its occasions shall dance for joy. Each of those verbs is a a command. And it's a future-oriented follow, seek, love. Those Mm -hmm. are things that you must do now. You can see him pushing us into that. And right in the middle there, you have the kingdom of anxiety. That's where you you are. (laughs) You're not going to escape it. That's modernity. Seek him in the kingdom of anxiety. And that's what is amazing about what Auden does with this modern expression of Christmas. It really is an exercise in seeking him in the kingdom of anxiety. Yeah, when I first came across the poem, I was like, a Christmas oratorio? This will be heartwarming. (laughs) There are heartwarming moments, but you got to work for them. (laughs) He makes you work for them. All the better. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for guiding us through, for the time being, this beautiful Christmas classic. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured writer and editor Jeff Reimer, production assistance by Martin Chan, Nathan Jowers, and Logan Lebman. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, sometimes midweek. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app, and we'd love your feedback. Ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts are particularly helpful, but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu. We read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show, bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear. And if you're a regular listener, it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week. So I'll ask you to step up and join us. Help us share the show. Behind those three dots in your podcast app, there's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting the show, you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters, the people that matter. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.